Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Building Security In podcast, the next decade. I'm Drew Kilborn. And I'm Sammy Miguez. Together, we have about 60 years of experience in the software and security spaces. This is where we talk with industry leaders about cybersecurity challenges waiting for us just over the horizon. Today, it's our great pleasure to introduce Jim Routh. Jim has been a driver of cybersecurity and application security improvement for over 25 years. While serving in CISO and CSO roles, he's widely credited in creating organizational risk management structures and security capabilities at organizations such as American Express, DTCC, J.P. Morgan Chase, Aetna, CVS Health, and MassMutual. Jim also served on the boards of both health and financial services ISACs. Over the years, Jim's contributions have earned him awards such as the Lifetime Achievement Award from the Santa Fe Group, being selected to the CISO Hall of Fame, and being the Information Security Executive of the Year twice. Today, Jim continues his work in digital transformation and innovation in cybersecurity practices with an eye toward enterprise resilience. In addition to serving on four corporate boards, he actively works with other boards and executives on aligning business strategy with internal transformation efforts and with changes in the consumer marketplace. Jim, it's a great pleasure to have you here today. Hey, Drew, I'm really happy to be here. Sammy, glad to join you guys. Uh, this great uh, topic, and I'm, uh, I'm really interested in it. It's great. Yeah, it's been a while, so we're looking forward to chatting with you today. So let's jump right in. Let's start with a little focus on DevOps, kind of looking back a few years and see where we've come from. What events or innovations over the past, say, five years have led us to the state of cybersecurity today relative to DevOps? Yeah, it's, uh, DevOps has been around for a while, but it seemed, at least from my perspective, that the whole work from home initiative as a result of uh, COVID was an accelerant for IT transformation and really pushing more emphasis on cloud first uh, development and uh, deployment. Uh, and that, uh, that accelerant has, uh, in some cases, caught some organizations uh, without being well prepared for that, to manage that uh, transformation. Uh, and uh, it's really fascinating because uh, in, from my experience, and uh, of course I was a software developer and a pretty lousy, consistently lousy software developer, <laughs> I, should, I should point out. Uh, but uh, that's kind of how I started in, in IT. Uh, but back then there weren't too many you know, bad things you can do. You could write bad code, but um, you, you couldn't do a lot of damage to the enterprise because you had to throw the code over the wall for the production team. And They'd say, "Ah, this ain't ready, Ralph. You know, go, go back to go back to the, uh, your homework." And uh, and so they, they there was a there's a lot more structure, control, uh, uh, and frankly, very few decisions that developers uh, had to make. And if you you know roll the tape forward and look at development today uh, in a cloud first model, where you know your repos are hosted in uh, the cloud, you're using open source components to bring together different capabilities in, in really time to market uh, record time. Uh, and, uh, and there's, you know, there's probably 20 major decisions that DevOps teams and developers on DevOps teams make that have significant security implications, not just 
insignificant, significant security implications. And so the software development process is different. It's it's not the same as uh, developing on-prem. Unfortunately, the software security control capabilities um, are largely originated and, and developed for on-prem. And so now we have a whole different software development process going on. And we have all of the cultural change issues with DevOps teams that are writing code to configure infrastructure that supports production environments. Uh, and so just from a attack surface uh, standpoint, uh, there's a huge es escalation of the attack surface. And we as cybersecurity professionals, we have to retool some of our skills and capabilities to be able to keep up and manage uh, you know, resilience in this kind of environment. And uh, it's not easy. Yeah. You, you know, Jim, you, you mentioned a handful of things there that, that are each, you know, a half hour conversation. I, I want to focus on one. You, you talked about DevOps as an accelerant and, and, and I think everyone would pretty much agree with that. Um, but I think it's accelerated different parts of the organization in different ways. Mm -hmm. And, um, so let, let's just, to use a bad analogy, you know, development is is really the rubber on the road. You know, it's it's the tires. So so we've accelerated the tires to 100 miles an hour, but the security organization, the IT organization, the cloud organization, and other parts of the organization are still going 45. Mm. And so what is what have you seen as, as the gap between the acceleration in dev and ops versus the acceleration in let's just say app sec container sec cloud sec etc you know what i mean i do and because you introduced a metaphor i'm going to try to do the same <laughs> <laughs> i recently i'm in uh in naples florida in the winter and there's this museum, it's called the Brebsen Museum, and it's the history of the automobile, essentially, uh, over the last 200 years. And uh, uh, what you, and I saw probably 200 uh, classic uh, automobiles uh, uh, that were really race cars uh, first and automobiles, you know, for the consumer second. But the, the, the point is that uh, if you looked at the evolution, the history of uh, automobiles in society, uh, cars got faster, uh, uh, significantly uh, faster, not because of bigger engines uh, and not because of more efficient engines. Uh, they got faster because the brakes got better. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and the reason I point that out is like DevOps is, is kind of like running a fast race car, you know, a, a hyped up uh, turbocharged engine uh, driven uh, car. Uh, but the brakes are kind of the, not really thought about. And uh, so you have to brake sooner as you go into the turn so you don't crash the car. And even, even if you can accelerate faster coming out of the turn, you're still wasting a lot of time. If you have better brakes, you'd actually, you know, the car would be going around the racetrack a lot faster. And so with DevOps is, you know, a, a race car without brakes. And um, it turns out that, um, there's m many, many more capabilities that developers have and resources uh, in a cloud-first model, uh, but the controls are lagging. And, uh, and the controls have to be 
um, fundamental to supporting what I believe is, you know, one of the places that people get lost in an organization. It's accountability. And, and from my perspective, whoever builds software, doesn't matter what their title is, doesn't matter where they report in the organization, doesn't really matter who they are, but whoever builds software, creates software or, or integrates software, they have an accountability and responsibility to do that in a quality way. And doing it in a quality way means resilience. And resilience means security. And so we need brakes for that, you know, lightning fast race car. Uh, and in many cases, we don't have the brakes. That's great. I, I love that analogy, Jim. And and I recall that you always said, you know, uh, as a CISO, uh, my big solution uh, to the problem is building a resilient engineering group, which always was interesting because typically the CISO doesn't own that group. So it becomes very influential from that perspective. Um, so we've looked back a few years, kind of understand where we've come from. If you look three to five years in the future, where are we going? What are the biggest challenges in front of us? What are we going to have to do to continue to build secure software? Yeah, so if we look, you know, history is a, a pretty good indicator of, you know, patterns that may repeat themselves in the future uh, if you buy that premise, right? And so if we look back at the acceleration of the IT transformation process and the proliferation of, of, of capability that's at the hands of the developers uh, today um, and then say, okay, what's going to be different, you know, five years from now or as, as we evolve, continue to evolve. Um, and I think, I think what's going to happen is that there's going to be a more democratic way for DevOps, Dev, dev people <laughs> to function in an enterprise and create software. So I think creating software is gonna get easier. The tools to create software is gonna get more sophisticated, um, but the level of skill required may actually go down. It may, it, like we all be maybe um, producing software, um, like speaking through an oral interface, like a, you know, Siri, build me this, you know, capability. And so um, building software or creating software in terms of identifying the functionality that you want and, and just saying, you know, build me something that works and then trying it out and iterating, that, that's going to be the evolution. And there's just going to be more and more tools and capabilities to kind of enable that as we go through in the next several years. So the, I still talk to CISOs today that assure me that they have full responsibility for making sure that software that's created doesn't have any security defects in it. And I scratch my head. I say to myself, "Well, but you're the you're the CISO. Oh yeah, that's why we have you know an application security program. They do these assessments. They make sure that you know there's the, the, the code is resilient." I'm saying, "Well, why don't you just have the software developers take accountability for that? And why don't you figure out a way to give them?" the tooling necessary for allowing them to own the responsibility of building quality software. Oh, no, no, they're not up to that. Of course, they all they care about is producing software. They don't care about resiliency or security. And so the security team has to do that. And I, I just scratched my head. I said, that's 
that's not a scalable model. That's mm-hmm. that's like failure. That's that that's never going to work. It's it's that simple. Mm-hmm. And so that the, you you built obsolescence into your control capability. And from a risk management standpoint, you know, from my perspective, it's time to go find another job. But that's what you're doing. But there's the point is there are a lot of product security teams that think their job is to make sure code is secure. Uh, and um, and I'm I don't think that model. If there was a time where that model was appropriate, I think it was back when I was a developer, <laughs> I think 25, 30 years ago. I don't I don't think it fits today. I think we have to, we, meaning IT, has to recognize that whoever builds software, even if it's talking into an AI program that, uh, you know, spits out code, uh, you know, we're accountable for the quality and resiliency of that software. We certainly need some instrumentation to help us navigate and guide us to quality software but um that's where the accountability has to has to stay today yesterday and certainly tomorrow mm-hmm. yeah it's 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 interesting because we've gotten really good over the years at finding defects we haven't gotten as good at fixing them if we did we wouldn't have the OWASP top 10 anymore it'd be different right, right. and uh, and that hasn't changed in years um Sammy what are your thoughts well, it, you know, I have 17 questions. So uh, we're we're going to work backwards. So I'll ask the most recent one first. You know, this has to become, to, to borrow a cloud word, uh, this has to become a shared responsibility model. I think it was always a shared responsibility, but the share was, you know, 90-10. So 90% was the AppSec team who somehow believed they could test security into software. We, you know, nobody ever believed we could test quality into software. We've been saying that since the 70s. Mm. But for some reason, we believed we could test security into software. And I think for some reason, we still, some organizations or or some people still believe that uh, as opposed to build security in. So what's what's the new shared responsibility model going forward because again it can't be in my opinion it can't be all you know 90 10 it can't go 90 10 the other way so so what's the 50 50 split to achieve reasonably secure software at acceptable business velocity between you know, let's just say the top three or four stakeholders, you know, GRC, CISO, uh, head of dev, head of cloud, who who really brings what to the table? You know what I mean? Mm. Well, you um, identify shared responsibility. Of course, we've seen this before, the shared responsibility is introduced by cloud hosting vendors uh, that said, yeah, security, it's a, it's a shared responsibility. And, uh, and I still have had conversations. This is absolutely, it's happened many times with people in the cloud hosting world that would say, you really don't need to worry about security. It's covered. It's, it's cloud. It's secure. It's secured by design or default or whatever. And, um, 
And magic pixie dust. Yeah, that's how I'm. That's uh, that creates a chuckle <laughs> in my mind. But there, it turns out there is some truth uh, to that, or some facts, I guess, that represent a part of that, which is. Cloud hosting providers have done much better job in IT hygiene than any enterprise I ever worked at, and uh, and and they actually do that in a repeatable way that's scalable and and effective. And so, in some respects, you can say, okay, I have a relationship with AWS as an example, and uh, and so I'm going to count on AWS to make sure that uh, they manage all the security vulnerabilities having to do with hardware. And uh, and and they you know they have the uh, the infrastructure of uh, that hosting solution covered, uh, and they do a good job of that, and and that's their responsibility. Um, and they are very quick to point out what my responsibility is, uh, and it's pretty much everything else. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and so uh, so that's a shared responsibility model. So I, there certainly is some precedent uh, for that. Um, but I would say that the, you know, the difference is in a software, uh, you know, accountability model. Yeah, there's, Sam, you're absolutely right. There is shared responsibility between the CISO or the cybersecurity team or the product security team and the DevOps teams and the, and the developers. But I think similar to the cloud uh, security model, the ratio of responsibility still rests largely on the DevOps and developers. Um, uh, is there some things that the product security team, uh, you know, take accountability for? Absolutely. So there, so is it accurate to say there's shared responsibility? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't know what the percentage is, but the majority of the responsibility still, I think has to be in the DevOps dev developer world. So, so what is the, so in, in over the next couple of years, and I think we all have our own answer, I'm interested in yours. What does the 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 CXO, CSO, CISO, whoever it is, the CXO who owns the AppSec program, what are product security, software security, whatever they call it, what right. what do they really need to bring to the table over the next couple of years? to ensure that both business objectives, money, revenue, and security objectives are, are able to be addressed. We can talk about whether they're getting addressed, but mm. what do these CXOs need to bring to the table over the next 12 to 36 months that enable secure software objectives to get met? Mm. I mentioned earlier that... Um... Developers today make, you know, 20 major decisions that have huge security implications. And some of the examples are like a developer or DevOps team member will decide um, what level of encryption to use in the data in both the test or uh, build process and the production environment. Right? And, and they may decide the, the firewall configuration and they may decide the authentication requirements. Uh, all of that stuff used to be done in a central IT organization in, in kind of the DevOps world, that's that's well within their their realm of uh, of capability and responsibility. Uh, mm -hmm. And so the, your question is, well, what how's that going to change going forward? Is there going to be more? And I'm and I think the answer is, at least from at least one dimension, if I'm a, a DevOps team looking at a you know an application for digital consumers, 
I think authentication has to be in the scope. And I think in two ways. One is the work or employee authentication, which is the DevOps team members and whoever's acting as the administrator um, and whoever, you know, as a privileged user, um, you know, you have to think about, well, what's the right level of authentication? Because if somebody compromises our repos and injects mm -hmm. anything into the build process, you know, we're toast. So, mm -hmm. so all of a sudden, authentication never, <laughs> never was part of the BSIM model and never was part of software development. And, and all of a sudden today, I think it has to be, I think at least for the repos and maybe even the cloud accounts, you know, uh, authentication has to be considered um, and data encryption and, and secrets management yeah. um, has to be considered. Uh, and, um, and it turns out that uh, developers today um, actually create a lot of secrets, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Because again, because the environment's not stood up for them, they're building it. And so um, authentication, secrets management, maybe even um, privileged access management, all of a sudden, um, I think, are now part of application security. Um, and I don't think any of us would have dreamed that up 10 years ago. Yeah. No, def definitely not, right? And we saw that last year. It got a, got a few people in trouble. Uh, but it does definitely extend that model of what the development teams are responsible for and how they have to start protecting software and different ways you can get in trouble. <clears throat> it is pretty interesting. Yeah. So, Jim, uh, there's, um, hey, there's one thing I, yep. I have to point this out. It, it was probably one of Sammy's 17 questions that he didn't get to. <laughs> so, so I'm just going to give him a little bit of a break here and say that, um, you know, we've seen uh, in terms of IT evolution, we've seen AI and specifically machine learning algorithms uh, fundamentally change um, how we use data science pervasively across an enterprise today. Uh, and it's and it's also permeating uh, uh, cybersecurity. Um, there, as we use more and more AI in the, uh, the creation of software, uh, and then the operation of software, uh, I think there's a inherent responsibility and obligation that wh whoever's in the realm of software security, whether they're developers or DevOps leads or uh, product security people, data science and data science fundamentals as a foundation is, is going to be a lot more important tomorrow versus today and, and mm -hmm. going forward. And so we, we in the, this realm or space of uh, software security professionals, application security uh, team members, uh, really anybody who's playing anywhere in that um, need, need to keep an eye out because um, because uh, uh, data science is becoming a game-changing capability and how it's deployed in so many different ways. And it's just a matter of time before we concentrate that on software development. Yep. Well, and, and, and that's going to drive a lot of people around the bend, right? So yes. imagine we've been building development tool chains for the last five years that are completely instrumented. Well, what do you think is going to happen when I start pulling reports about how often you actually move your mouse, type on your keyboard, you know, uh, commit 
do code commits and mm. everything else, uh, I think we're going to see DevOps go, well, gee, DevOps, that was a fun experiment. We're not going to do that anymore. Um, you know, I, I'm, yeah. I'm the VP of artisanal software. You know, we build software with, um, with old keyboards and old mice with rubber balls in them. And uh, it's the only way to build software. None of this um, fully instrumented pipeline stuff. Yeah, we're just going to let that go by the wayside. Farm to platform, I guess. Huh? <laughs> so, uh, so Jim, it's interesting. So, you know, we've had the pleasure of working with you for, I don't know. Don't say it. It's too, there's too time, many man, decades. Next decade and a half, I feel like, or something, right? And yeah. watch you go from, from CISO to CSO. You know, one of the questions I've never had a chance to ask you just give me, I want one story on what the world, how the world changed when you went from CISO to CSO. What was that one thing you went, hmm, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> well, it turns out, you know, there's a lot of opportunity for shared infrastructure and shared processes between physical security and cybersecurity. And it's actually, there's, there's uh, you know, a movement towards convergence. Uh, which you know, I was fortunate enough to be part of and, and kind of understand and, and wrestle with. Uh, and uh, the most fascinating part of that convergence, uh, which is uh, talked about quite a bit uh, between physical and cybersecurity professionals, uh, is somewhat similar and akin to the uh, IT transformation and DevOps initiative. It's less about the technology and it's more about the culture. Uh, and it turns out that, uh, you know, physical uh, security uh, people can be just as effective at cybersecurity uh, as cybersecurity people that, you know, grew up through the technical ranks. But uh, the fundamental difference is uh, there's a set of cultural norms and behaviors. Uh, for example, um, if I'm in physical security and I worked in any law enforcement agency of any kind and even many uh, military police you know, branches, um, what I was taught uh, both uh, uh, overtly and, uh, and, and you know, kind of just through practice and sharing of practice, I was taught not to record information. I was, I was taught not to write it down, you know, not to use my keyboard for it. I, I was taught to um, use voicemail, but, uh, but be very uh you know, never use classified information or never use sensitive information. And so the, what happened is that in order to communicate effectively amongst your peers, you developed like a code, like a, you know, a language and uh, it, almost like spy, you know, spy craft in uh, and, and the intelligence services. And, um, and so, and these are norms and behaviors. And of course you, 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 if I just describe that and say, how does that apply to IT professionals? The, the answer is not just the opposite. <laughs> mm -hmm. We're taught as IT professionals to write everything down, or you know, use our keyboard, or you know, document the notes, and you yeah. know, uh, uh, and it's it's totally different. And to and that's where the challenge is in uh, in a conversion of uh, cybersecurity and physical security. That's that's the hardest challenge. It's the people issues, the soft stuff. It's the, it's how do you deal with the different cultures and, uh, uh, and it's there's no easy way to do that. It's it's hard and the the infrastructure synergy and the incident response reuse uh, that's the easy part. Um, mm -hmm. 
the third party governance there. You know, that's that's all the easy part. Um, the hard part is all about people and culture and behavior. Yeah, I mean, we've been fighting that battle for a lot of years, right? So yeah. uh, that's pretty interesting. I, it was it was kind of interesting to to kind of see the difference between those roles and how they kind of come together. So, uh, I mean, you've had a, a legendary career without a doubt. I mean, what motivates you to get up every day and keep doing this and keep living this this cyber dream that we're all in? Yeah, well, I have to introduce a little bit of reality here in that I am totally liberated in my current role um, because I'm no longer an active operational CISO. I, I still have a CISO title. I do a little bit of work for a company called Transmit, uh, but uh, it's few and far between. And and I'm liberated because I get to you know work with people I like, like you guys. I get to do the kind of work that I like to do, and I work when I want. And uh, so that's that's my definition of retirement. And uh, but I I don't want to pretend that um, I'm still you know an expert in enterprise protection on a seven by 24 basis, because what I've learned, and, and I didn't really realize it for the 20 years I was in it, but you know, I used to think of myself as having a you know, pretty good way of balancing work-life balance, but mm-hmm. um, not really, uh, because <laughs> the, the way your mind works, like I'd be uh, you know, on the weekend talking to someone, they'd say, yeah, that was uh, pretty scary when uh, that, I just read about that. And I, in the back of my mind, I'd say, Ooh, what are they talking about? I need to know. I need to know now. Right? I, I need, that could come back and bite me next week. You know, I I need to dive in and you know and figure it out and see what the implications are. And then I have to figure out. All right, well, how do I message that with my business stakeholders? And that that's another realm of wrapper that that goes on to it. And so I'm constantly in a twenty four by seven mode when I'm protecting an enterprise and. Um, and it turns out that if you remove that from the equation, uh, life is really fulfilling. <laughs> and so uh, it's different. And so I don't really consider myself a practitioner expert anymore. Although I tell you this, I made a boatload of mistakes. And as a result, I learned a lot. Uh, and I certainly have a lot to offer other cybersecurity professionals. I probably have 55 people that I mentor uh, and they're a lot smarter, more talented than I will ever be or, or ever was. Uh, and, and I welcome that. I, it, it's wonderful. But I'm not in the game anymore uh, mm-hmm. in terms of uh, what CISOs have to deal with. I, I certainly can empathize with them and appreciate what they do, but it's different. Well, that means you can you can make predictions without you know without I can. Baseball, right? <laughs> I can. So, it's absolutely true. So let's hit you let's hit you up for one more. Okay. Um, you know, in in and I understand that this isn't very black and white, but that's that's what makes it fun, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, Mark Andreessen, others have have expressed the sentiment about you know software is eating the world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have. Uh, devices that are software. We have software-defined infrastructure, software-defined networking. We have software-defined buildings. We call them smart buildings. They're really software-defined buildings. We have software-defined conveyances. I mean, you may think your Tesla is a car. You know, it's just a laptop with tires. It is. Um, It's it's exactly right. You know, so, so you talked about 
this intersection between CISO and CSO, intersection between networks and physical security. We can think about the intersection between IT and OT out in the cyber physical world, you know, out in manufacturing and production. Um, what's going to, who really brings, who's going to bring the security oomph when everything is software? You know, you call HR and it's a bot. You call customer service and it's AI. You walk into a building and you have to wait for it to boot, you know, before you can sit at your desk. I mean, who, what, what the heck? What's going on? Yeah. So you're asking a huge, audacious, you know, kind of question. I think I'm asking the right guy. <laughs> well, <laughs> It turns out there's an easy answer, <laughs> and I didn't. I, I'm surprised that I say that because it's such an odd, you know, bold kind of uh, question in terms of its uh, significance realm. But but it's actually easy, and here's why it's easy. Um, any cybersecurity professional that understands data science uh, is going to thrive in the future, and there's a reason for that. And the reason actually is derived from physical security. Mm -hmm. This may blow your mind, but it turns out that the FBI figured out, uh, I'm going to guess 15 years ago, uh, maybe it was 20, maybe it was 12, I don't know, but somewhere around 15 years ago, they said, you know, when you interrogate potential criminals uh, and you ask them questions, um, if you analyze their micro expressions, which is the muscles in their facial structure, uh, you can determine when they're telling the truth or not. And it um, launched this axiom, if you will, that said behavior doesn't lie. Uh, so you like I could be saying one thing, yet my body language might be telling you something different. Mm -hmm. And at least that I'm not comfortable with what I'm saying, and therefore I'm probably lying. Um, so these are techniques that are used across uh, law enforcement. But the axiom of behavior doesn't lie uh, allows us to use data science to clearly identify whether you're an adversary or whether you're um, Sammy, you know, who you are. Mm -hmm. And it's because we can apply the, a concept that we all learned in uh, geometry, which is that you can represent data on a graph. Uh, and so if you take all data uh, and represent it graphically, it uh, turns out that you can take data patterns of clusters and say that represents a set of behaviors and we're going to establish that as a pattern. And then we're going to look at new data. Uh, and we're going to determine whether that new data matches that pattern. And if it doesn't, how far off it is from the pattern. What is the mm -hmm. deviation from the pattern? We can represent that mathematically. And then we can say, okay, if it's off by 10, take this action. And if it's off by five, take this action. 
And those actions could be automation. So what I've just described is a way of processing information about behavior in milliseconds without human intervention taking action. So now we can determine in real time whether it's Sammy at the end of a consumer, digital consumer device interacting with an application or Drew um, simply by taking all the benign attribute information that we can gather, putting it into these patterns and then measuring the deviation from the pattern, triggering the automated action, all of that in real time. That's data science driving cybersecurity control in near real time with no human intervention. That's the future of cybersecurity. And if I were a cybersecurity professional, that's where I'd be making my investments. Yeah. Yeah, that's totally cool. I'm going to have to ask you, though, to not use my name in the same sentence where we talk about measuring deviation. That, you know, <laughs> uh, so just, just, just something going forward. Got it. We'll do. Yeah. I'll take that under advisement. Uh, those, those are great insights, Jim, without a doubt. Listen, we want to thank you very, very much for spending time with us today. We need to do this more often, without a doubt. Maybe next time over a glass of wine. Or two. Uh, certain that your insights today are going to help somebody with some challenges they have or in their career path. So uh, really appreciate you sharing uh, without a doubt. And thank you very much. Hey, I'll tell you this, guys. I'm, I'm no longer in the game, so to speak, in the 24 by 7 operational mode protecting enterprise. Um, but I am very fortunate that I get to interact with you two guys uh, doing this because this is fun and, uh, and I appreciate the opportunity. So thank you. That's great. Yeah, thank you. Thanks man. so much, Jim. Appreciate it.